2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life? that this man sends words to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Quote, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached him and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, Wash and be clean. So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. 2 Kings 5, 1-14. And now I'm going to pick up and start reading here in verse 15 and go through 27. So ultimately we'll read the whole chapter here of chapter 5. extra notes in here for us this morning. We'll see how well her father has taught her the gospel. You know, I'm I'm reading through the Bible in 90 days and it's been tough. (laughs) There's a lot of reading each day. And uh, I've been moving through these historical books and there's little nuggets every once in a while. You know, you kind of get in this rhythm and you're like, yeah, okay, this king was bad and this king was good and, th- and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden, a unique story comes along. And it's fascinating that in Second Kings here, 
well, first and second Kings both, twenty chapters are given to Elijah and Elisha. Out of first and second Kings, twenty chapters. So if you're looking at literature and trying to understand it, interpret it, you think to yourself, if that much room is given, obviously the author wanted me to notice something when he only gives, you know, a paragraph about a whole king who ruled for forty years. So Elisha and both Elijah, Elijah being the first one, uh, are very important in First Second Kings. And so let's pick up the second part here of of this story of Naaman and his healing. Starts in verse 15 here. Then he returned to the man of God, that being Elisha, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, remember he's now clean, Behold, I now, sorry, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules, load of earth, uh, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon, or Hadad, who was a type of Baal, was an idol, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to uh, say there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two uh, festal garments. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two festal garments and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them to Gehazi. Or sorry, before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my spirit go when the man turned uh, from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Now would you open our ears 
and our mind's eye to what you have to say to us through these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered who was first to do certain things, you know, eat certain fruits that didn't make you feel well, drank certain juices and whatnot that could kill you? You ever thought about who was first? I've often thought, you know, who was the first one to discover that, that killed somebody, you know? Or that that was really bitter, or that that cacti, you couldn't drink the water from it because it was poisonous. Or that that frog would make you sick, or whatnot. I often think about that, and in Scripture we have a lot of firsts. A lot of first times where people disobey God at specific times, and judgment is brought down on them. It doesn't happen to everybody because the point is we're supposed to learn from that one person who gets punished, that one person who gets judged in God's presence, such as Nadab and Abihu, who instead of offering this specific type of wood that God had just told them in the previous chapter to use, they go down to Walmart and buy the cheap stuff and they use it and burn it before the Lord and God burns them up. In the same way, things like that happen in the Old Testament that really shock us because God is trying to teach us something and use what should be happening to all of us for this one person as an example. I mean, according to my sin, I should be killed. I shouldn't be allowed to live. We don't think of our sin in those drastic of terms, but that is according to the law. Most of us would not be here this morning if justice was truly brought down. Instead, grace and mercy abound. And we praise God for that. But there always has to be this first one, this example one. And we find one of those here in this passage this morning. What is the Spirit's work even in the Old Testament? Because obviously it bleeds over into the New Testament as Jesus comes and fulfills both the Old Testament and the Spirit's role and work. I think we can see and begin to decipher several lessons uh, of the Spirit's work here in, in chapter 5. And I've been thinking about this chapter, um, and, and you know it's, it's a lot here, but I'm trying to condense several things here. So I only have three movements this morning I want to carry you on uh, of what the Spirit can accomplish, well, does accomplish here, but also can accomplish in our own lives. The first thing is a little context here. Elisha was anointed by Elijah and given Elijah's spirit and actually a double portion of Elijah's spirit. If you remember, at the first of 2 Kings is when Elijah and Elisha have this meeting and basically at the Jordan River is where it happens that his spirit is then placed on Elisha. So the same spirit that helped Elijah be such a powerful prophet and such a witness in Israel is also the same spirit, a double portion of that spirit, that goes on to Elisha. Uh, Interesting, again, this happens at the Jordan River. You remember the significance of the Jordan River in the New Testament where Jesus Himself is baptized in the Jordan River. And guess who descends upon Him? None other than the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So if there's a portion given to Elijah and a double portion that is given to 
um, Elisha at the Jordan, then the full portion of God's Holy Spirit is given to Jesus Christ in the Jordan River. And so, it, again, we see the significance of, of water, but also here of, in particular, the Jordan River. Also, contextually here, as far as Israel's history is concerned, this is about the 8th century, 7th century, where we have basically full-on Baalism, which is B-A-A-L. Remember, Baal is the Canaanite god. He's the storm god. He's one of the most powerful gods because not only is he the storm god, but he's also the fertility goddess god. And he has several fertility goddesses who would be Mother Earth's and different types of gods that he would have um, mated with to produce and be fruitful. And so if you wanted to be fruitful in life, you needed to connect yourself to that God, and he was the most powerful. Um, Sexuality has always been a power thing in the ancient world, and it always was viewed that way among the pagans, especially polytheists. And um, so Baal was worshipped in Israel, which, again, remember, when Solomon dies, the kingdom is split into northern Israel is called Israel, and southern Israel is called Judah. And so there's Israel and Judah, and they split. It's a divided kingdom. And Judah has Jerusalem, of course, and Israel's capital is Samaria. And so this is why the little girl says, I wish that he could go to the prophet that is in Samaria. Now, Ahab and Jezebel were two of the wickedest, wickedest rulers that ever Israel was ruled by. And Ahab and Jezebel had one plan, and that was to make all of Israel Baal worship. They didn't worship Yahweh. They set up idols in Samaria to be worshipped. And so they were appointed, basically, every, all the prophets... Anything that they did was pointed toward Baal worship. And so all of Israel was turning toward idols. And God sends two prophets to curtail that um, in Israel. And it's Elijah and Elisha. And you remember Elijah's famous fights with both Ahab and Jezebel. And of course, at the end of Elisha's life, he actually anoints Jehu, who actually sets out to do justice to the house of Ahab, which is actually some of the most grotesque types of justice that is happened that happens in the Old Testament. I mean, if you want to read some of the worst stuff, go to that story. And he's executing justice on people who were trying to stamp out Yahweh's worship, to Baal's worship. So that's a little bit of the context here in 1 Kings. And so we come down to another pagan who is not a worshiper of Yahweh, who is Naaman. And this is northeast of Israel where Syria is. He's, he's a Syrian. Uh, and Aram, they, they would have spoke Arabic, is where the Arabic comes from. He's a very powerful man. And he uh, is favored by his king. And basically the uh, Syrians had come down several times and raided Israel. They were not on good terms with Israel. And so Naaman is... Mighty because of his raids. Basically, he's defeated Israel. And Israel's kind of nervous and scared. Hence the reason that when the letter comes to the king of Israel, and he says, hey, here's my servant. I want you to be able to heal him. He says, what is this dude doing? Am I God that I can heal or give life? I can't, what am I? And so he tears his clothes, which is a symbol of mourning. The fact that he was about to be 
quarreled with by Syria was not a good thing. And so he comes to Israel and basically wants to be healed. And so the, the king totally forgets about who can do this healing. It's not him. Instead, it's God. The first thing I want you to notice is this. This doesn't even happen, this whole story, without one little girl. You see, in the midst of these raids, apparently there was a servant who was taken away from her family, a young girl, to attend to Naaman's wife. Now see, in the ancient world, all you ladies who have had children would have had help. Um, nobody did that process alone. Um, everyone had a mistress. And so Naaman had this mistress for his wife uh, in order to take care of her. And she was a young girl from Israel. And she says concerning her master, says, hey, look, I wish that he would go down and, and could see the prophet at Samaria, who is Elisha, because he could bring healing to this leprosy. And leprosy for them was our type of cancer today, or some people would maybe refer it to AIDS. It's an epidemic that had no healing, that basically the only um, remedy for it was to be quarantined and wait until you died. And that's not our remedy always here, but you understand the similarities between the two. It's cancerous, it's, it spreads like a cancer. Uh, once you get it, you get these white boils, sores, and it just spreads over your whole body. And sometimes, you know, it, the term here used for leprosy uh, is a generic term for skin diseases, but apparently he had one that he wanted fixed, so he probably had a bad one, one that would ultimately kill him. And it's interesting that Naaman's name actually means pleasant, but leprosy made you deformed. It actually warped your bones. Um, and a lot of times it, would even, it was even worse than that. Uh, some people described parts of leprosy, much like the bubonic plague would have been described, where you begin to bleed out of these wounds and, and sores and boils and whatnot. So it's interesting, his name means pleasant, and yet he has a disease that is not. He is very powerful, and he has a disease that weakens him. So the contrast here between Naaman and what other people see of him and what he really is is obvious by the author's intent here uh, with what he's, trying to, what he's trying to say. And this little girl says to him, if you only knew in Israel this prophet. So without this little girl, this witness of Yahweh, who again is in a terrible predicament. She's been ripped from her family. She's young. She's in a pagan land as a slave. You know, I thought when I was reading this story of Downton Abbey, if any of you are familiar with that show, the, the servant people that are there, I mean, that's what she did. She literally attended to another family, except she was a slave ripped away from her family. It wasn't by choice at all. And yet she makes the best of her situation. And notice this, still wants what is best for her master. Now that's an interesting thought. Instead of, instead of trying to, you know, um, for instance, the king, the first thing he thinks is, oh man, they're out to get me. What can I do politically to save myself? But that's not the first thing this little girl thinks about. This child. She thinks about the wellness of her master, the one who has enslaved her to his house. 
She doesn't think, oh, you know, I can make you a proposition. If you'll let me go free, then I'll tell you someone who can heal you. It's not how children think. You know, it's fascinating how the children think. They don't think like we do either. I tell you to pray for me, and you say, okay, yeah, I sure will, man. We'll be praying for you. But you don't do it right there on the phone with me. Jackson, if you ask him to pray, he does it right then. Reagan, you ask her to pray, she does it right then. There's no, there's no pause between. There's no, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do it later and might forget, knowing me. No, it's now. And this child is a witness to God in a pagan land and creates this whole story that we have in chapter 5. Which essentially is the gospel coming to the Syrians. <laughs> That ends up being the story here because you see, the Spirit's work in this text this morning is this. That He is a witness to what God is doing in the world. Through all kinds of sources. Not just through the mighty. The preachers and the people who are clergy and the paid ones and the dedicated ones. That's not always who He wants to be the witnesses. But instead it's people like you who are in the workplace. People that I can't ever get in touch with, you can. You are witnesses. God has called you to witness to the fact of Jesus Christ, to the resurrection, to the church, to all the gospel. I mean, again, we're in Epiphany now, and what does Epiphany celebrate? The gospel coming to the Gentiles. What is happening here in this text? The gospel is coming to the Gentiles. The good news of Yahweh is coming to the Syrians. How? It's through a little girl. The second thing here is Naaman's cleansing. (laughs) He comes to Elisha's house with this huge caravan with all this gold and silver and all these garments. Suits, if you will. Nice ones, you know. And he pulls up, and Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him. Here's this powerful man, powerful ruler and leader. He doesn't even come out to me. Instead, he sends out his servant. And he says, yeah, we'll go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and you'll be clean. And he actually storms off mad because it's too simple. We know this because of what he says later. He basically says, look, what is going on with this? I thought, notice verse 11, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God. This is not the Lord my God, but his God. And wave his hand over the place and cure the leprosy. And he says, well, is not my rivers in Damascus, which is their capital, Are not my rivers better than this nasty little Jordan River? Could I not wash there? And then his servants try to calm him down and say, Look, uh, if he would have told you to do something difficult, you would have done it. But here he is just saying something simple. Why wouldn't you do that? And he's already stormed away from the house. You see, sometimes salvation to us is too simple. What do you mean God forgives me? He doesn't hold anything against. What are you talking about? I, I can't. I don't. I don't think I can trust somebody who would do that. 
And we don't. What do you mean I just have to put my trust in Jesus? There's got to be, what else, I mean, what else can I do? Let me at least do something for Him. I mean, look at the means I have. I, look at my pocketbook and look at my resources and look at who I am and look at what I've done. God says, no, that means anything. Notice, too, that Elisha isn't the healer. <laughs> he comes thinking, I'm going to go see this healer. And I'm going to pay him just like any other transaction I would do. You know, I want a hamburger, I go pay him. So he comes and ready for his hamburger and he gets nothing. He's told to do something somewhere else in a little podunk river called the Jordan. That's dirty, muddy. He says, I, I, I can't do this. And he gets mad. Because oftentimes we think we know what salvation should be. Salvation should look like this. And it should be like that. And if it's not, I don't want any part of it. It's fascinating that he goes away in a rage and so do the people and the religious leaders who encounter Jesus. Now, Jesus preaches, correct me if I'm wrong, the purest gospel of anybody. He was the best preacher. And when he preached about the gospel, they got angry and picked up stones. Another time they got angry and wanted to push him off the side of a cliff. At the end of the day, they got angry and murdered him. Why? Because salvation is in our minds a lot of times, too simple. It's too straightforward. It's so straightforward that we don't believe it. That we don't trust God. So he is talked into actually doing this by his servants. Again, we see the importance of servants here. It's, it's fascinating. In, the, in this story, there are two groups of servants. One being a servant girl who influences Naaman to actually go to Israel. And the other group is his own servants who end up saying, look, just humble yourself. He's asked you to do something very simple. And that really seems to be the key here because apparently Naaman was a proud man. I mean, look at what he's done. And yet he was in a very difficult situation because he was leprous. And so ultimately, he does the right thing and humbles himself. So he went down and dipped seven times and he was healed and had the flesh of a little child. He was healed immediately. And so he goes back to the prophet, Elisha, which if you remember in Luke chapter 4, there's the story of the ten lepers who Jesus cleanses. Remember? And he tells them then to go to the priest and one of them comes back to thank him. And it's... A, there's a lot of similarities between the Luke passage and this 2 Kings passage. And he goes back and he wants to give him all these gifts and Elisha says, no, I'm not going to take anything because it wasn't my doing. This is God's doing. You see, the work of the Spirit is God's work. I can't do it for you. Nobody else can do it for you. You can't do it. It, that was one of the hardest lessons I had to learn. Was with all, with all over my life, 
being raised in a Christian home with a great father and mother, with a good brother and a good church family, and with all my self-will and self-power, I still couldn't produce for myself salvation. A pure heart. A heart that was for God and for others. I still was in love with the fact that I could do it. And there has to come a time in every single one of our lives where we humble ourselves before God and realize that we cannot produce salvation ourselves. It's a gift and it must be received. It's tougher than what we think sometimes to receive a gift. Because typically you know what it means to receive a gift is it means you're obligated. Yeah, we get to give something back. Because now you've been the recipient of something that wasn't yours. And we understand the problem, quote unquote, with gifts. That's why we're careful who we give them to. And look who God has given them to. He's entrusted us with the gift of His Son, with the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. We are witnesses. It's not that you will become a witness or that some people have a special gift of witnessing. You already are a witness to Jesus Christ. The Israelites were called to be a light to the nations, to witness to what God was doing among them. And you too have already been a light to the nations. As I said the other week, you're salt and you're light. This is what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. You're salt that preserves this decaying world. And you are light that shines in a dark place, a dark culture. You expose the darkness. But the only way you can be a light and true salt is if God's Spirit cleanses you. Naaman was powerful, but he was weak. We may look around this room and at our work, at our school, and say, that person is very strong. On the outside they may be, but on the inside they could be leprous. They could be cancerous. They could be dead. Just as Jesus said concerning the religious leaders, He said, you're nice and painted on the outside like a tomb, but inside there's just dead bones. Is there life inside Nobody, maybe, maybe you've tricked everybody. Maybe you've tricked everybody into thinking that you're, you're a great Christian and that you have it going on. But what's in here? Be honest with yourself. Naaman had to get honest with himself. Do I want to be healed or do I want to hold on to my pride? I can continue to rage away all the way to Syria and not be healed because I thought he should have done it like this. But he had to put away what he thought and instead humble himself in a dirty, muddy river called the Jordan, which is one of the lowest places on the face of the earth. You see, the Spirit comes to make us a witness, but in order to make us a witness, He must make us clean. And the last thing here is He comes to reveal God and to reveal to us who we are. 
If you look at the last part of this chapter, Gehazi, who is the servant of Elisha, who is the servant of the Lord, who the, who the um, chapter in the previous chapters and the preceding chapter, they all call him Elisha, the man of God. He is the servant of Yahweh, essentially. Yahweh's prophet. And at the beginning you have Naaman who is a pagan who comes to God and God reveals to him, you remember what he says here, look, I know now that there is not only a prophet of Yahweh here in this land, but also that Yahweh is the only God. You know, I never have noticed that he said that before, but that's a monotheistic belief. That is absolutely unheard of in the ancient world. No one believed in monotheism. The closest was henotheism, which was, okay, we're going to worship Baal among all the other gods because he's the most important. But that's not monotheism, saying that he is the only God, there are no others. That was unheard of. And so, again, the good news of God, the one God of Israel, has come to Syria. And he says, look, when I go back and have to help my king, when he bows down before God, forgive me because I'm not going to be bowing down, I'm just going to be helping him. And he says, go in peace, you'll be fine. So he goes. And Gehazi says, you know what? Elisha didn't treat this guy bad enough. Because this guy's a bad guy. I mean, he's raided our people. Why does God care about him? And I hear in Gehazi's voice the same thing I hear in Jonah's voice. Who are these Assyrians? You want me to go preach to the Assyrians? Do you know how many people they've killed in my family? There's no way I'm going to go and preach to the Assyrians at Nineveh, which was their capital. He hates them, and he hates the Syrians. And he goes after them and says, look, I'm going to get what's mine from this guy. And so he does, and he goes, and his, both his uh, greed and his hatred of the Assyrians calls him to sin against God. And he goes and he lies and he steals and he deceives and he comes back and basically Elisha says, was not my spirit with you when he got off his chariot? (laughs) I mean, you ever hate the kind of question that Elisha gives to Gehazi? Where were you? Don't you hate that kind of question when you know you've been somewhere where you shouldn't have been? You know, i never forget uh, one time uh, I acted up in um, our youth, our children's church uh, service with Steve Smith, actually. And he got so frustrated with us um, that he, <laughs> we were meeting in another building and they had already had the, the new building. And so he actually went and just sat in their service. So, of course, Daddy's teaching on Wednesday night and he sees Steve, who is the teacher of the children's church um, come in and sit down with no children, which means we're left orphaned over there. That meant that something was dead wrong. So, uh, nonetheless, several other people came over and stayed with us, and he had had enough. And then after church, I played an extra long time outside with the other kids um, and did not go home. And then as I went home, you know, I, I went through the living room very quickly went upstairs and got about halfway up the stairs and I heard my name, Marshall. And I just was like, 
And I just stopped dead in my tracks because I knew what was coming next. You know, it was just a simple question. What happened tonight? Which may have been something he'd ask a thousand times. But the fact that I had done something wrong made it all the worse. Of course, I could have lied like Gehazi. (laughs) But I knew that my dad already knew everything. So, I did not. Because I knew his spirit was with me always. I could feel his eyes burning through me even when I wasn't looking at him. And I could just sense his presence. It was the craziest thing in the world, but it was the truth. Um, And so, anyhow, I ended up getting in trouble for that. Gehazi does too. And again, his trouble was way worse than mine. He becomes leprous. So at the beginning, you have a pagan who is leprous, who is healed by Yahweh. At the end of this story, you have the servant of God who becomes leprous because of Yahweh. Because of his disobedience. And I think the story teaches us that the third point here is that the Spirit is the revealer. He not only reveals God, but He reveals what's truly in our heart. We can't know ourself by ourself. It's why when I ask you the simple question, you know, who are you, Paul, or who are you, that you have to begin to respond by what other people are to you, who your mom and dad are, who your friends are, your wife, your children, your work. You can't describe yourself by yourself. It's why we don't walk around with a mirror. I have to trust that Jessica's going to tell me if there's something on my face that doesn't need to be there when I'm out because I can't see myself. And it's the truth. We cannot know ourselves by ourselves. We need God's Spirit to be a mirror to reveal what is truly in our heart. Gehazi was greedy and he hated certain people. This is something that was revealed here. What might be revealed in your heart if God's Spirit showed up in your life today? You see, this morning, you are the elect of God. Just like Israel, you have been chosen to be a light to the nations. He has provided His cleansing. And it's very simple. You can be cleansed this morning from your sin if you'll just release it to Him. Some of you seriously in your heart, you know there is sin and you will not release it. You love it too much. It is your precious and you won't let it go. You will hold on it until you are literally deformed by its leprosy. Gollum again, Tolkien... Uh, imagines this in the character Gollum. Spiegel. And it's a... I mean, you can't get a better illustration of what it looks like to be leprous. Ugly. What sin does to you, not only internally, but physically. We think, oh yeah, this is my sin and I can keep it very hidden. It's okay. I've got it under control. It's manageable. But Jesus never acts like sin is manageable. It always will take us further than we wanted to go. Always make us do things that we never thought we could do. Release it this morning. It's that simple. 
We try to make it complex. We storm off and say, that's not true. You don't know what I've gone through. I don't have to know what you've gone through. Just like the prophet Elisha, I can say to you, come to the Spirit this morning and He will cleanse you. It's that simple. You can make every excuse in the book for it. You can walk away and rage and get angry. But the fact of the matter is, your sin, my sin, can be cleansed by God's Spirit. There's no reason to wait. And then lastly, you will be revealed one day. I think that's the point here. Gehazi, anybody would have looked at him and said, man, wouldn't you like that job, dude? I mean, here you are getting to see all these miracles by Elisha. I mean, the, you know, the, predece- the, the one who comes after uh, Elijah. What better job could there be in all of Israel? He must be a real man of God. And yet, his heart was greedy. His heart hated certain people. And it was revealed. God's revelation is not just revealing God. It's revealing you. And one day you will stand and be exposed. All secret sins will be known. Interesting who said that, by the way, was Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And of course... It's said elsewhere, but in particular him who had sins beyond anything that we could ever dream of. And he says it's secret things that will be revealed. It's one of the last things he says in Ecclesiastes. So this morning, the Spirit's work is to make you a witness, to cleanse you, to be a revealer in your life. Will you let him do that? Will you let him do that right now? Because that's the real question. Or will you storm off and make up your own excuses and say, well, I thought, well, I thought, well, I thought. Well, you're not God and neither am I. It's both the most simple affirmation and the most difficult. He is God, I am not. Try to say that this morning in your prayer life. Try to say it as you pray and as we respond to God now. Big problem.